Hey guys, welcome to Crime. The rest is history. And before moving on to today's episode, I would suggest everybody to listen to the disclaimer. So guys, in today's episodes of Jack the Ripper series, the second Conokill victim, Annie Chapman, murdered on 8th September 1888. There was a huge outpouring of sympathy for her when the story of her last days was made public by the newspapers. Annie Chapman, the second victim of Jack the Ripper, was murdered in the backyard of 29 Herbury Street on the 8th September 1888. The killing was even more gruesome than the previous murders and this time the killer had taken away a body part, her womb. Jack the Ripper's second victim, Annie Chapman, born on 1841 and 1888, led a somewhat nomadic existence around the Spitalfields. She was 47 years old at the time of her death. A short, plump, Asian-faced conservative who, for four or months prior to her death, had been living at a crumbs lodging house at number 35 Dorset Street where she paid 8 pence a night for a double bed. She appears to have enjoyed a cordial relationship with the other tenants and the deputy keeper, Timothy Donovan, remembered her as being an inoffensive soul whose main weakness was a fondness for drunk or a drink. Like many of the women in the area, Annie supplemented the meager income she obtained from a crochet work and making and selling artificial flowers with prostitution. She had two regular clients, one known as Harry the Hawker and the other man named as Ted Stanley, a supposed retired soldier who was known to her fellow lodgers as the Peninsular. Who was the Peninsular? As it later transpired, Stanley was neither a retired soldier nor a financier, but was in fact a bricklayer's labourer who lived at number one hospital place, Whitechapel. According to Timothy Dowan, Stanley would frequently spend Saturdays to Mondays with Annie at Crossingham's. He also claimed that Stanley had told him to return Annie away should she ever arrive at the lodging house with other men. Stanley, however, vehemently denied this and claimed to have visited Annie only once or twice. An argument at the lodging house. Whatever Annie's relationship with the Perenneur, he seems to have been the cause of the only trouble that Timothy Dowen could remember. Her being involved in during all her time at the Crossingham stay. At some stage in the month before her death, that is, the different witnesses remembered different dates, there had been a frequency between Annie and a fellow lodger, Lisa Cooper. The full details of the argument told by different witnesses are confusing and contradictory, with some even claiming that Harry the Hawker was the cause. According to Eliza Cooper, in her inquest testimony, she had loaned Annie Chapman a bar of soap which Annie had given to Ted Stanley, who then went to wash with it. 
Over the next few days, Lisa asked several times for the return of the soap, only to be dismissed by Annie, who, on one occasion, contemptuously tossed a halfpenny onto the lodging house kitchen table and told her, "Go and get a halfpenny of a soap." This animosity was still evident when the two women met a few days later in Britannia Pub, on the eastern corner of Dorset Street. However, on this occasion, Annie slapped Lisa across the face, screaming as she did so, "Thank yourself, lucky that I don't do it any more." Lisa reiterated by punching Annie in the eye, and then hard across the chest. Annie appears to have come off worse from the exchange of blows and bruises she sustained was still evident when Doctor Phillips carried out her postmortem. Of course, it should be remembered that this is an account given by Elsa Cooper at Annie Chapman's inquest, and she was no doubt anxious to portray herself as the injured party. Annie Chapman bruised and in pain. Whatever the cause of the argument, Annie Chapman's last days were spent bruised and in pain, her health rapidly failing. On Monday, third September, when she met her friend Amelia Palmer on Dorset Street, the bruising to her right temple was more than evident. How did you get that? Amelia Palmer asked. Annie's response was to open her dress and show her the bruising on her chest. Amelia bumped into Annie again the next day, close to Spitalfields Church, and commented on how pale she looked. Annie told her that she felt no better and that she might admit herself to the casual ward for a few days. When Amelia asked if she had had anything to do eat that day, Annie replied, "No, I haven't had a cup of tea today." Amelia handed her two pence to buy some food, and warned her not to spend it on rum. One of the last sightings, three days later, at around five p.m. on the seventh September, Amelia again saw Annie in the Dorset Street. She looked even worse and compiled, and complained of feeling too ill to do anything. She was still standing in the same place when Amelia passed her again ten minutes later, although she now trying desperately to rally her speech. It's no use giving away. I must pull myself together and get some money, or I shall have no lodgings. Were the last words Amelia Plummer heard from Annie Chapman speak. John Davis finds the body. A little before six a.m., John Davis, an elderly resident of twenty-nine Hanbury Street, came downstairs, walked along the narrow passageway, and opened the backyard of the door. The sight that met his eyes sent him reeling back in horror. Moments later, two workmen walking along Hanbury Street were suddenly startled when, from the door open, Of number twenty-nine, a wild-eyed old man came stumbling into the street. "Man!" he cried. "Come here!" Nervously, they followed him along the passageway. Looking into the yard of twenty-nine Hanbury Street, they saw the mutilated body of Annie Chapman 
lying on the ground between the steps and the wooden fence. Her head was turned towards the house and her clothes had been tucked up above her waist, exposing her red and white stripped stockings. A handkerchief was tied around her throat. She had been wearing this when the killer cut her throat and it had not, as has often been asserted, been tied by the murder to stop the head from rolling away. Her face and hands were covered in blood and her hands were raised and bent with the palms towards the upper portion of her body giving James Kent the impression that she had been struggling and had fought for her throat. They go for the polis. After a few moments of stunned silence, the three men sprang into action and raising out of the house sent off in a different direction to find a policeman. The horror of what they had witnessed immediately began to sink in with James Kent causing him to abandon his search and go instead for a brandy to steady his nerves. Henry Holland raced up to the commercial street and headed across to the Spitalfields market where he encountered a constable and on fixed point of duty. Holland painted and out the news they find and was somewhat taken aback when the officer curtly informed him that it was against procedure for him to leave his post. He was so angered by the police officer's officious attitude that he had later made an official complaint to Commercial Street Police Station, only to be told that the officer had been correct to follow the procedure and not to leave his post. John Davis, meanwhile, had headed to Commercial Street Police Station and bursting in through the doors, breathlessly demanded to see a senior officer. Inspector Charlier arrives. Moments later, Inspector Joseph Charlier was hurriedly along the commercial street. Turning along Hanbury Street, he forced his way through the spectators who were already gathering in the passage of number 29. He ordered that the winner city to be cleared of all the sightseers and then sent a constable back to the commercial street police station, instructing him to bring as many reinforcements as possible in order that the crowds might be contained. Another officer was dispatched to fetch Dr. George Bagaster Phillips, the divisional police surgeon. Gangler then acquired some snackings from one of the neighbors and used it to cover the body until the arrival of the police surgeon. Dr. Bagaster Phillips arrives. By the time Phillips arrived, at around 6.30 a.m., the crowd outside the house was some several hundred strong. Casting a curiouser glance down at the body, it was more than obvious to him that the woman was beyond medical help. His testimony at the inquest recalled what he saw. The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned into right side. The trunk protruded between the front teeth but not beyond the lip. The tongue was evidently much swollen. 
The front teeth were perfect as far as first molar. Top and bottom were very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was diversibly deeply, that the incisors through the skins were jagged and reaching the right round the neck. On the wooden plane between the yard in question and the next, smears of blood corresponding to where the head of deceased lay were to be seen. They were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. Later that day, the postmortem would reveal that the killer had defectively cut out Annie's Chapman womb and had gone off with it. But at that hour of morning, there was a little more that Dr. Phillips could do at the scene. So having pronounced the woman dead, he ordered that she to be removed to the White Chapel Workhouse Infirmary in the Eagle Street off Old Mountain Pew Street. The body is taken to the monastery. Watched by the agitated crowd, a battered coffin was carried from the building and placed on the police ambulance, which set off eastwards along Brick Lane, Hambury Street, and then turned on to the right to the Brick Lane. A little before 7 a.m., it pulled outside the mortuary gates where Robert Mann, whose unauthorized strippings and washing down the body of Mary Nichols was, no doubt still fresh in the vines of the police, was waiting to receive it. The body was not to be touched. When Inspector Chandler turned up a few minutes later, he took a one look at Mann and made it clear that nobody was to touch the crops until Dr. Phillips had completed his post-mortem examination. Satisfied that his instructions had been understood, Chadlier placed PC burners in charge and headed back to the commercial street police station. Both he and Dr. Phillips were furious later to discover that within two hours of his disappearance. Two nurses, acting on the instructions from a clerk of the workhouse guardians, had once more stripped and washed the body before the postmortem could be carried out. So guys, since the body was cleaned and stripped and was washed before the postmortem could be carried, the murder was left unknown and hence the mystery of Jack the Riper was left unsolved so guys this is the episode of annie chapman as we've seen in the previous episodes there wasn't any mutilations of body part being taken away from the murderer but in this time in annie chapman her womb was being taken out so guys until then, the next episodes in crime, the rest is history. This is your host, Lavnia Zeus. Adios!